well, the Christmas series begins next week with a perfectly timed message called Black Friday Blues. So I cannot wait to, to bring that talk. Um, but, I, you know, I never do this that I can think of. I want to begin today's message with, uh, with a disclaimer. You know, it's my goal every time when you, are, when you come to New Spring that there's a takeaway for anyone here, regardless of their spiritual situation. I want you to have a takeaway if you're a committed Christian and you've walked with God for 50 years. I want there to be a takeaway if you're new to the faith. I want there to be a takeaway if you're searching. Or even if a person were to walk in and be a complete non-theist, I still want them to find value in the service because I believe that's the power of God's Word. It can add value to anybody's life. But from time to time, I narrow the focus so tight that it's, it's, um, it's one of those messages where I need to begin with a disclaimer. And the disclaimer is this. If you're not a new springer, um, if you're a member of another family of faith, you want to take what I talk about today and apply it to your church. Um, and if you're not a God follower, I don't want you to worry about this because you've got bigger issues to tackle. So today, I just want to talk pretty much to new springers, or as I said, if you're watching online or watching um, on television and you have another family of faith, you can take the, the things I'm going to talk about today and you can apply them to your church family. We're in a series called Generosity just a two-week series. And today I want to talk about something very specific. Um, not this, but just to get us thinking about it. Years ago, back when I counseled, I would have women whose husband had left them and there had been a divorce and a settlement. The women would tell me a story that would go something like this. My husband never helps. He doesn't pay alimony. He doesn't pay, pay child support. He doesn't pay for anything for the kids. Uh, but when Christmas comes, he gets very extravagant, and he goes out and buys extraordinary gifts for the kids, and he feels like he's done something really great. Now, last night, after the second service, I actually had a lady come to me and tell me the same thing was going on in her life right now. I won't use the term deadbeat dad because it's a complicated world, but that's the first expression that comes to mind. He's a guy that doesn't take care of his kids. He doesn't think about their day-to-day -day expenses. He doesn't think about the house that they live in warmth in the winter, school clothes, school shoes. He doesn't think about those things. But when Christmas comes, he wants to go all out, buy gifts for them, so that on Christmas morning, they're going to have, the kids are going to have smiles on their faces. Now, you and I might have opinions about that man and why he does what he does. But here's the thing that I want to come to in my thinking. At some point, that has to make sense to him. The logic of that has to, has to make sense to him. He feels in his heart and mind when he's doing that Christmas shopping, thinking about how his kids are going to react to that, he feels that he is being generous. And perhaps in some strange way he is. But here's what you and I know. His generosity isn't dependable. It's episodic. It's generosity that has to do with a specific event, a specific moment. The reason why I use that construct for us to think about today is that's what's happening in America. What we're discovering in America is that people are generous with causes, but they're generous if their heartstrings are plucked. If it's something episodic, if it's a GoFundMe thing or something that people read about in the paper, or if it's some huge event that gets everyone's sympathies, people will rush forward to fund it. And that's a good thing, just like it's a good thing for this dad to buy Christmas gifts for his kids. That's a good thing. But the problem is, it doesn't take into account the fact that God's work of the good causes that we're part of go on all the time, that there are mortgage payments to pay, electricity bills to pay, school clothes to buy. You see what I'm saying? You know what's interesting about this? We are a very blessed culture today. 
really, even though America wishes our economy were better, we're really a blessed culture. I find an interesting statistic in this, that during the Great Depression, when the soup lines and soup kitchens were in full bloom, when unemployment was somewhere around 25% in places and the Dust Bowl and all that, do you know that Americans gave per capita 3.3% of their income to good causes? Whereas today it's 2.5%. Do you realize Americans were far more generous in the Great Depression than we are today? And I can't help but wonder if it's not because of our emotional response, episodic response to giving instead of dependable, consistent giving. Now, the reason why I bring that up today is when I look at what God has to say about you and me giving to his work, God is challenging us to give in a dependable way. You and I, if you grew up in church as I did, you and I know that God has a plan, and that is every week or however we receive income. If you're a Christ follower, you bring 10% of that income to the place where you worship. And that's God's, that's God's plan. But I want you to hear me out with what I'm about to say, because if, if you don't hear out the whole thing, it could sound like heresy. Whenever God tells me something, I, I want to know what he's telling me to do, but I want to know what his thinking is behind it. And I'll tell you why. If all I know is what God says about sexuality or money or time or the way I live my life, if all I know is the do's and don'ts of what God says, I'll just have a bunch of boxes to check. And that's good because God wants me to be obedient. But I want to know more than why, what God has to say about something. I want to understand his thinking. Because, see, if I, can get, if I can tap into the way God thinks, then I'll have the kind of understanding that I need to obey him, not just out of a robotic sense of God tells me to do this, so I'm going to do it. And that would be good within itself. But I want to understand his thought process. You know, there's a verse that should always be right on the tip of your and my tongue. It's Isaiah 55, 8, and it goes something like this, God speaking. Here's what he says. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts. Throughout the years, people have read something in the Bible, and they would come to me, and they would say, how would God say that? Because they had a particular sense of justice, and they didn't feel that God's sense of justice lined up with their own. So consequently, their first thought, well, something must be wrong with God. But God is right up front. He doesn't think like we think. Let me give you an example. If you know the Bible, you know the plan that God has for us to go to heaven. God says we're all flawed sinners. None of us is good enough to go to heaven on our own. So therefore, Jesus came into our world to be a pinch hitter, pinch runner for us. He lived a perfect life. He lived the life we couldn't live. Then he laid that life on a Roman cross. The way God saw it, the blood that came out of Jesus' body was a currency to pay for your sins and my sins. And anyone who asks can be forgiven of anything and become God's child. Now, let me ask you a question. If you had never known that story and somebody put you in a room and said, guess God's plan of redemption, who among us would have come up with that plan? I'm going to guess the plan you and I would have come up with would have gone something like this. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell, right? That's our thinking. So you see what God is saying? He's saying, God's God saying, my thoughts are, are nothing like yours, and you and I are never going to be able to find our way to God by our own thinking. And so for me, I, I think about that. I want to know in every situation of God's life, whether it's moral purity or money or time or the, the, the goals that I set in my life, how can I understand God's thinking? Because I'm perfectly willing to check the boxes if that's what Christ following means, but I don't think it is. 
You know, God, if he wanted to, he could be like some parents. How many of you can remember? I don't know if you had this situation growing up. You ever ask your parents when you were growing up, why do I have to do this? And the answer came back, you do it because you're the little kid and I'm the dad. Or you do it because I say do it. You know? And God could say it that way, but he doesn't. I mean, you've got a Bible in your lap. You've got 66 books of God saying, here's my thinking. So when it comes to bringing 10% of my income, I want to know, what's God thinking? What's behind it all? Well, let's look. Let me give you some verses, and we can start to build a composite idea of God's thinking. Number one is Malachi 3, verse 10, in which we're introduced to the tithe. God says, bring it to the storehouse. So the tithe is 10%. God says, bring it. So I don't give the tithe. I bring it. It belongs to God already. And I bring it to the place where I worship. So that's the first thing. Now, somebody could say, well, Mark, that's Levitical law. That has to do with the Old Testament Levitical law. Well, actually, it predates it substantially. Because in the book of Hebrews chapter 7, we read that Abraham brought tithes to a mystical character named Melchizedek. This is long before the Jewish nation began, long before the Levitical priesthood. But Abraham brought tithes to this, as I said, mystical figure. He doesn't seem to have any beginning of days, no ending of days. We're not really sure. Perhaps Melchizedek could have been what we call a, um, a Christophany. Uh, a visual manifestation of pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus appears several times in the Old Testament, and so it could have been one of those. We just don't know. But all we do know is that Abraham was tithing before the nation of Israel began. I love this particular verse because Jacob, and again, you've got to realize the nation of Israel is very young. It's fledgling. There are only a few individuals. Here is Jacob. He is on the run for his life. He's all by himself, but he has an encounter with God. And the Bible talks about this in Genesis 28. Jacob said, this memorial pillar I have set up, watch this new spring, will become a place for worshiping God. Every once in a while, someone will tell me, I can worship God anywhere. Usually that's their way of saying, I don't want to attend church. <laughs> but that's not the case. You can worship God anywhere, but not in this particular way. There needs to be a place that you come back to that is your place of worship. And if it's new spring, it's new spring. If it's not, then it's the place where you worship God. And here's the interesting thing. Some of you are watching me in various places around the world right now, and you say, Mark, I'm the only Christ follower I know of. But your living room right now, if you're watching New Spring, that can be the place that you've set aside to worship God. Now, here's the thing that Jacob said. And this memorial pillar I've set up will become a place for worshiping God. And now, notice this, I will present to God a tenth of everything God gives me. So now we have a place associated with bringing the tenth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the Bible gives us the New Testament perspective on this that tells me on the first day of the week or whenever I worship, I am to bring a portion of the income that I have in to the extent the Bible says that God has blessed me. Okay? So now I look at that and I say, okay, I should have a place of worship, a storehouse where the seed, the word of God is presented. I'm to bring 10% or as God has prospered me and the gift is to be brought when I worship. Well, I, I can see clearly that all that adds up to consistency. It's not like the guy that just bought Christmas gifts for his kids. I mean, God is saying, I want this to be dependable. It's not a GoFundMe thing. It's not an episodic thing. God is saying, I want this to be a dependable kind of generosity. Now, a few moments ago, I said, I want to know how God thinks. Let's ask the question that every three-year-old knows. Why? Why does God want me to do that? And, and the reason why I ask that question is I realize, realize very clearly God is not a charity case. God's not a charity case looking for donors. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. 
And when I think about my puny 10% or 12 or 20% or whatever it is that I give, when I think about that, God's not up in heaven sweating on how do I get my hands on Mark's stack? And he can put my lights out and take all of it. So that's kind of interesting. Why does God ask me to do this? Because he doesn't need it. And beyond that, why God could fund his churches any way he wanted to. I mean, God could set it up so that any place a church is established, there could be oil under the property and could drill, and we never have to receive an offering. So why? Why does God do that? Listen, guys, I don't talk about giving very much, and that's to my discredit, because giving is God's way of blessing you and doing his work. But I want to tell you the most important thing I'll ever tell you about giving to God's work. The reason, and here's if you really want to get right into God's thinking as to why he asks you to give consistently and dependably to his work, it's three things. Number one, God wants to do something for you. I don't know that this is really true at New Spring, but there could be a few of you right now that mentally you're closing your hand and you're saying, I wish I hadn't come today. I'll come back next week. I don't think many people do. It was like, I don't care what Mark says. I, what's mine is mine. Well, okay. But have you ever thought about something that God can't put anything in a closed fist? He can't put anything in. God, God wants to do something for you. Number two, he wants to do something through you. You ever, you ever, have a, you ever attend a funeral of somebody that you love very much and they had a cause that's very precious to them? Maybe the American Heart Association or perhaps the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals or any fine organization. And when you attend the funeral, there in the funeral guide, it says memorials can be made to this establishment. Do you realize that what a memorial is about is that person that you love who has passed is actually doing something through your generosity. They love this organization, and because you love that person, they're actually, even though they've passed on, they're actually doing something through your generosity. And it's the same thing with God, except in a much larger scale. God wants to do something through you. When you love God's work, when you love causes that are dear to God's heart, God is actually doing something through you. You become God's agent to achieve something great in the world. But I think of the three things I want to say to you, this is my favorite. Because not only does God want to do something for you and through you, God wants to do something with you. In Texas, where I'm from, Rich men and women oftentimes will do business with friends almost as recreation. It's like they'll just get involved in some sort of business project as a way of just fellowshipping with each other. And I think it's the same thing with God. The Bible talks about us being co-laborers together with God. God wants to do, he wants, here's the thing, never forget this. God is not a charity case looking for donors. He's an entrepreneur looking for partners. And so when you and I or engage financially in the causes that God cares about. He's doing something with us. Well, here's the deal. I grew up in church, and I'm all, I'm, sometimes a message on giving could almost feel like the minister was wagging his finger at the congregation, and I hate that kind of thing. You know, um, when I go to my doctor and I have my annual physical, he, he pokes on my abdomen. Does your doctor do that? And then, then he says, does that hurt? Now, it's not supposed to hurt. Now, if it hurts, there are a couple of options. Number one, I got something wrong. Number two, he's pushing too hard. <laughs> so if this message hurts, there's something wrong on the inside or I'm pushing too hard. Now, I can only control one of those. I want to make sure I don't push too hard, okay? I, I don't want to do something that, that's unskillful. So here's what I want to do today. I want to share with you because, forgive me, I don't, I don't want to make this personal, but 
bringing the tithe and bringing gifts on top of the tithe has been part of Mary Alice's in my life. I mean, even when our new clothes came from garage sales, there was a season like that. And so it's been a part of our life when we've, when we've had a lot, or well, I've never really had a lot, but I mean when we've had enough for the week and when we haven't. So here's what I want to do today. I want to share with you some reasons why I bring a gift to God, bring the tithe to God consistently on a dependable basis. And if you think, if you listen to this and it doesn't make any sense, then you can just leave me to my foolishness, okay, and have pity upon me. So instead of wagging the finger, I want to share with you why I engage in that. Here's number one. I love New Spring Church. There's no getting around that. I love New Spring Church. Now, when I've said that in the past, someone will say, well, of course you give to New Spring Church because it's your church. That doesn't make any sense. If I felt a sense of entitlement, that would explain why I didn't tithe, not why I did. See, here's the thing. I realize that when I give to New Spring Church, I'm giving to an organization that God willing will be here long after I'm gone. In this season, I've been given the charge of leading this congregation, but I don't know how long I've got to live. I hope it's a long time, but I mean, I want to give to this ministry so that long after I'm gone, it's here for my kids and my grandkids. I love New Spring Church, and it, it belongs to God. In the, in the book of Matthew, Jesus said, upon this rock, I'll build my church. So New Spring belongs to the Lord. I've been given the responsibility of leading it, but I have to obey God just like anybody else does. It's the Lord's church. And I love it with all my heart. Last week, I got to do something I don't usually get to do. I got to walk through the preschool building. We had Life at New Spring, which is a new member orientation that we have five or six times a year. And we had like 140 new members come into New Spring. That was awesome over Saturday night and Sunday. But what I enjoyed the most was just walking through the preschool building and to see wall-to-wall kids. Isn't that great? I mean, I love that. And I love the fact that our kids are learning about God, not in an institutional environment, but they're learning about God from great leaders who are innovative in their ways of reaching kids, and they're reaching these kids in such a way that the kids truly understand what they know. And the thing that I love about this, watching these kids come up through the pipeline from, you know, Baby Bay to Adventure Avenue to 252 to The Wire to The Hub to Student Ministry, they're coming through this pipeline of this awesome ministry, and they're just the most extraordinary kids I've ever seen in my life. I remember speaking at junior high camp, and when I got through giving the talk, I said, if you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. I don't even do that with you guys. I said, I want you to raise your hand. And an enormous number of kids raised their hands. So I said, well, okay, when you get through tonight, go talk to your counselor and tell them about the decision you made. And then I went to the back of the room, but by the time I got there, there was a queue of about 20 kids, many of them boys, that just wanted to tell me. And they, they would walk up and shake my hand, look me in the eye and say, Mark, I prayed with you tonight. And they would say the most, most wonderful things. I was listening to these 11 and 12-year-olds as they said, Mark, I just want to live my life for God. I just want my life to make a difference for God. That blew my mind. That is awesome. And then I was asked to speak at high school camp for three nights. And the first two nights I spoke, I preached for over an hour. And here's what you should understand. I wasn't doing a lot of entertaining. I wasn't telling a lot of stories like, like camp speakers do sometimes. I was just throwing strikes. Man, I was preaching the Bible. First night I was there, a lot of the kids asked me about Bible prophecy. So I said, okay, second night, I'm just going to like walk through the work of God. I'm going to start from creation. I'm going to go to the antediluvian period before the flood. We're going to talk about the birth of the nation Israel. We're going to talk, talk about the time of the judges, the kingdom, the split kingdom. We're going to talk about the kings, and we're 
going to talk about how the Israel went into captivity, and then we're going to go into the life of Christ and the church age and the rapture and the tribulation and the millennial kingdom and the eternal state. For an hour, I walked these kids through God's plan through the ages. And then the third night, I had to drive home, and we were almost to Joplin, Missouri. So I told the kids, I said, you guys have been so awesome to listen to me preach over an hour the first two nights. I said, I wanted to let you know I'm going to let you off easy, now. I'm only going to preach 30 minutes. And the kids began to boo. And one kid yelled out, preach an hour, Mark. And I thought, no high school group I was ever part of talk like that. <laughs> See, the kids grew up at New Spring. They don't know you're not supposed to like church. They don't know you're, they're supposed to have to go to church. I love New Spring Church. There's so many things, so many stories that fly through my mind. You know, for those of you who are close to me, you know that when I get tired, I kind of get down about things. And it was a long day, one day this week. I don't remember which day it was. And it was <clears throat> late into the evening. And I had to go by Dylan's. You know how that is. You always have to go by Dylan's, right? <laughs> no way home. Had to go by Dylan's. <clears throat> Went and sort of pick up something from Mary Alice. Still kind of just exhausted. Came back to my car and I looked under the windshield wiper and somebody put a flyer. You know how they do that in the grocery store sometimes? Somebody put a flyer under my windshield wiper. And I thought, it'll blow away on the way home. <laughs> but I live pretty close to Dylan's. So I get to my garage and it's still there. So I thought, well, I'm going to take that flyer off my windshield. And when I took, picked it up, it wasn't a flyer. It was a note. Somebody just left a note on my car. And the note had some kind things to say to me. And then right below that said, I want you to know this church saved my marriage. No name. I love this church. It's a church I always dreamed that there would be. I love this church. I want to be here. I care about it enough. I want to sacrifice for it. I want to give. You know, I don't talk about this very much, but I'm going to talk about it today. <laughs> We're building a new building, 36,000 square feet. For the first time in history, New Spring's going to have some marvelous tools to work with. Do you realize we've never had a purpose-built student space in the 50-year history of this church? Never. Student space has always been something that was constructed for something else. Right now, where the wire is meeting, do you know we've had funerals in that building three or four times? We've had weddings there. Nobody should ever be in student space where you've had funerals. I'm just, that, I, I can tell you that. But we're going to have, and then we'll have another worship venue with plenty of room. We're going to have a, a marvelous family space for parents who need to stay with their kids during the, during the service. It's just phenomenal. It's about $5.5 million building. And again, I haven't said anything about this. Do you realize, and by the way, here's some really good news. We're ahead of schedule. I love that. But do you realize so far we've written a check for everything that's been built there? I mean, <laughs> we're really conservative financially. Every once in a while, people will talk about all these extravagant stages and everything. You realize we make those. We're sort of like people that sew their own clothes around here. And that's New Spring. And we've saved money even during these times of economic downturn. But sometime during the month of December, we're going to have to begin drawing from a loan unless God were to touch our people with an extraordinary spirit of generosity. And it could happen. It really could. And I pray about that. Because right now, as it looks, we'll have to receive a loan somewhere between one and a half and two million, $2 million. And, and I just believe that, that it's here if we would open our hearts to, to the generosity God wants us to have. I, somebody could say, well, Mark, I don't think God cares about buildings. 
Well, he does. Let me show you. In the book of, in the book of Haggai, the people were putting off building God's temple, and they were busy building their own houses. And here's the thing. They didn't say, we're not going to build God's building. They were saying, they had this, this uh, kind of cheesy excuse. They said, it's not time. It's not time to do it. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. The people are saying the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the Lord sent this message, Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? God said, You hoped for rich harvest, but they were poor. And when you brought your harvest home, I blew it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins, says the Lord of Heaven's armies, while all of you are busy building your own fine homes. See, God thinks you and I care about buildings. You can say, well, Mark, my family is the people there. It's not my house. But how many of us want to be homeless? So buildings, buildings serve purposes. And it's the same thing with God. Now, I want to go through these others pretty fast, but they're important to me. One of the reasons why I give consistently and dependably to God is I want to, I want to be identified among God worshipers. See, here's the thing. People didn't just start worshiping God in America or 100 years ago. People have been worshiping God since Adam and Eve, and especially since Abel in the Garden of Eden. But what we discover about worshiping God, and the psalmist talks about this, David says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. That has been the components of worship from the very beginning of time. To give God the glory that's due his name and to bring an offering and to worship him in the glory of his holiness. So, hey, we talked about the widow with two mites last week. We just talked about Abraham and Jacob today. We talked about the Macedonian Christians who gave out of their poverty last week. I may be a tiny member of God's family, but when I give consistently, it identifies me among God worshipers. The third thing, and this is big to me on a practical basis, because like many of you, I live week to week. Consistent giving allows me to give more. You know, when I get to the end of the year and I look at my gifts, I always think to myself, I could never write a check for that amount. But I didn't give it all at one time. I brought it week by week by week. And I always am amazed at how God blesses and adds that up. Let me go to the fourth one because it's connected to the third. The fourth reason is it keeps me honest about what I'm giving. You know, when people give to occasional causes, like we'll have some here at New Spring, and we'll have a, a cause that comes up. If I only give to those causes, I can make myself believe I'm giving more than I actually am. But by giving consistently, it keeps me honest about what I'm giving. There's a strange statistic about tithing in America. Do you realize that when people make under $20,000, 8% of those who make under $20,000 give 10%. When that figure rises to 75%, 75,000, only 1% give the tithe. Isn't that strange? People who make under $20,000 a year tithe eight times higher levels than those who make over 75,000. I, I make that point because you could look around and say, well, Mark, I guess some wealthy people give a lot of money. Well, I'm, we probably do have some wealthy people who, who give generously to God's work. But the statistics would say more than likely it's not that way. Here's number five. The fifth reason why I give consistently is it's a weekly heart checkup. Jesus put it this way, don't store up for yourselves treasure, or rather store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There's something about bringing God what is his and giving to him that it lets me know where my heart is. 
And then here's the sixth reason. You know, consistent giving versus occasional giving means I understand that God's work goes on on a daily basis. You know, I want you to dream with me for a moment, whatever your feeling is about this. I want you to think about what it would be like if, if God's people throughout America, just America, what if God's people throughout America brought the tithe, if all of us did? First of all, there would be an additional $165 billion to do God's work. Within five years, we would fund every necessary church project. No church would ever have to have a mortgage. We would fund global missions. We would end world hunger. We would end world illiteracy. And we would provide clean water and sanitation for the entire world in five years. If all of God's people just did what he asked us to do. But I come now to the seventh reason why I give and the most controversial of all. Because from time to time when I talk about this, people would say, I don't think you should ever give anything to God thinking about what you're going to receive. I think it should always be sacrifice. But remember, we don't know how God thinks. And a lot of times we substitute human thinking for God's thinking and then we stamp God on it, but it's not God's thinking at all. If you have the idea that you should never give anything to God thinking that you're going to receive something, it runs counter to what Jesus said. Listen to Jesus in Luke 6, verse 38. For if you give, you will get. Now that's not Mark, that's Jesus. Could I read it one more time? If you give, you will get. If it's not true, why did Jesus say it was true? But it isn't just this, it's not just this verse. Practically every verse in the Bible that talks about consistent giving talks about receiving. He said, your gift will return to you full and overflowing, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more and running over. Whatever measure you use to give, God is saying that is the measure that he will use to give back. In other words, if I give in small amounts, God will return to me in small amounts. If I give in great amounts, God will bring back greater amounts. And you can't outgive God. If I give with a teaspoon, he'll give back with a shovel. If I give with a shovel, he'll give back with a front loader. That's just God's nature. You cannot outgive God. But you can't escape the message that if you give, you will receive. And I give in order to be blessed. Here's what's screwed up about that th first thinking I talked about where people say you should never give to God in the hopes of receiving something. In our human thinking, we go like this. We think that sacrifice is this really, really noble motive, and faith that God will bless us is not such a noble motive. So consequently, if I give, if I give in thinking I may receive something, and again, well, that's, that's down here, but if I give in sacrifice, that's very noble. Only problem is it doesn't square with the Bible. When Jesus came to the earth, what was he looking for? Faith. When, when he was unhappy, what was he unhappy about not finding? Faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, is it the hall of fame of sacrifice or the hall of fame of faith? And here's the thing. If you're in a relationship, you know exactly what this is about. How would you feel if in your marriage, the person you're married to or the person that you're dating, how would you feel if this person bought you an extravagant gift for which she or he sacrificed, but they didn't trust you out of, your si out of their sight? In other words, they sacrificed for you, but they don't trust you. I will tell you one thing, you, that's a toxic relationship because the highest thing that anybody can do in love is to trust you. And you realize 
While sacrifice for God is an important thing, and God honors it, especially if it's a sacrifice given in faith, but you realize that God is not a charity case up in heaven looking for our sacrifice. God wants to be trusted, and when we trust God, that's when he responds to us. You know what's ironic about tithing? Well, it's said that 20% of the people of a church give 80% of the funds, and probably in single digits, in the average church, do people tithe? And, you know, think about something for a moment. God says, bring the tithe in the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And this is the only time I know of that God says it. He says, test me in this. God is saying, try me and see if I don't open the floodgates of heaven and pour you out blessing that will be hard to receive. Well, when God says, test me in this, I want to do something kind of peculiar. I want to see if there were statistics about people who tithe to see if it really added up. And I began to find research on this, and I found studies on people who tithe. Now, here's a salient fact that all of us need to embrace before we go in these stats. This, there's no inco- this, is, this is income across the board. So it's not like these are rich people or poor people. This is all the way across the board. People who tithe. 33% are debt-free versus 10% of the general population. So among people who tithe, 33% owe nothing. 80% of people who tithe have no outstanding credit card balances. 74% of people who tithe owe nothing on their cars. 48% own their houses. But here is the statistic that almost knocked me over. 77% of people who tithe, now that's almost four out of five, 77% of people who tithe, and remember people tithe at under $20,000 a year annually, more than in any other price figure. 77% of people who tithe give between 11 and 20% of their income. Now, guys, you're starting to get a composite picture. People who tithe are blessed. People who tithe tend to increase their giving, not decrease it. What do they know that the rest of us may not know? They know that God can be trusted. It's as simple as that. God's not after your money. He owns everything already. He just wants to know, can you trust him? See, most of the world worships money. That's why Jesus said you can't worship God in money. And when I come and bring the God of this world and lay it at the feet of the true God then I've shown where my heart is. Well, I'm out of time, but I want to do something kind of weird today. I'd like to change the subject. Could I do that? You can just take that and think about it and see what you want to do with it. But as I talked about a few moments ago, I just began to, when we talked about what was going on in France, I became concerned that everyone here today know for sure that no matter what happens to you, that you're going to heaven. You know, I always remember at New Spring, it's always somebody's first day in church. But oftentimes, unfortunately, it's someone's last day in church. I'm not trying to be negative. It's just many times I've, I've, I've given a talk like this on Sunday, and before the weekend was out, I stood before somebody's casket in this place. And I just want to make sure that everybody here knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are ready to meet God. I hope you live 105 years if that's what you want to do. hope you live till Jesus comes. But all of us today... We need to think about, we don't know where we're going to be in 24 hours. We want to know, is everything right between us and God? 
And the good news is, you don't have to, you don't have to you say, well, Mark, I'm not sure I'm good enough. I'm sure you and I are not good enough. The good news is that God loves you. That's the important thing. And God will forgive you no matter what you've done. The Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Every one of us here can think about something really bad that we've done or would have done if we, could, we weren't going to get arrested, you know. But the blood of Jesus Christ is more powerful than any sin we've ever committed. And if you're willing to ask God, he will forgive you. If you will believe that Jesus Christ took your place, died for you on the cross and rose from the grave, you can be forgiven of your sins. And you know what? You can face every day thinking, no matter what happens to me today, if I leave this life today or if I leave it in 80 years, I know that Jesus Christ has forgiven me. So I want to just end the service with a prayer. Would that be okay today? Can we just bow our heads for a moment? And if you're here and you say, Mark, I just want to know for sure that I'm securing Christ, you can have that assurance, and let's pray and ask God for that. Now, I'll pray it slowly. You can hear the words I say and decide if you want to repeat them to God. It's not the words. It's what's in your heart that matters. Here we go. Dear God, I am a sinner. I cannot save myself, but I believe you love me unconditionally. I believe Jesus died in my place. I believe he arose from the grave. I believe his blood paid for my sins. Please forgive me and make me your child. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, guys, I know we're crowded, but please don't leave without getting this. Can you say, Mark, I'm not sure what happened to me. I prayed with you, but did something happen? And the answer to that is yes, but I want you to have something. It's a packet with a book I wrote. The book's short, but it'll answer a lot of questions. There's also a DVD and a coupon for a new Bible. All you got to do is go to guest services. It's in the middle of the lobby. There's a little one back by the coffee shop, and just say, I pray with Mark. Thank you guys for being here. Christmas starts next weekend. God bless.